0: Our scripture reading today is Romans eight twenty six through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And those, those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Cammie. Well, good morning again. My name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I am the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church in town. Uh, we are one of two locations, so uh, if you've heard of Christ Pres before, there are a couple locations of us out there. One is on Old Hickory Boulevard, and... Um, our location opened up almost two years ago in October, which has been really exciting. And I'm really grateful for what God is doing. He's been doing a lot in the last uh, less than two years and uh, even before that, which is fun. And I used to be actually be a campus minister. I worked on the uh, campus of Vanderbilt, was a chaplain over there for 10 years. Students, I want to welcome you. I know your world very, very well. Uh, I've been uh, in that, uh, swam in those circles, both mostly at Vanderbilt and even some at Belmont uh, for a long time. And so I want to welcome you. And this morning, I actually want to invite you students just to know that um, our college care group has some coffee cards for you. I know it's early, but you're going to need it. Um, So we'll have those. You can save them for, you know, midterms, whatever. And then we're also going to go to SATCO, San Antonio Taco Company. If you're new to Nashville, haven't eaten SATCO yet, I'm a Texan you got to have queso right after church. It's important. And um, <clears throat> so it'll be free queso, free tacos. Love for you to join us after that. As well as uh, one other thing, there is a congregational meeting right after our service to vote on new officers in our church. So uh, we'd love for you to stay. Uh, those of you especially that are members of vote, uh, and it'll take just a few minutes afterwards. We'll start right after the service concludes. <clears throat> so... I'm thankful we get to enjoy this um, building. I was actually in here last night and I was performing a wedding. And I don't often get to perform weddings here, which is funny as much as we meet here uh, because it's one of those places that's been booked out for you know ages and everything. And it, it reminds me of when um, I went back and looked at my own wedding video. And uh, my wife and I, Megan, and I've been married for uh, 18 years and looking back on that video, I was thinking, man, I cannot stand looking at myself. (laughs) It was one of those moments where you see yourself. It's not just like, you know, when you listen to yourself recorded on your voicemail or something like that, and you go, oh, why do I sound that way? It was like the full-blown, ooh, like I'm seeing things of myself, not just the haircut, like total vanilla ice, like shave sides, tall. Imagine this afro just going straight up. I mean, that, but it was just seeing parts of my heart and the way that I would talk and the things that just came out and the, my mannerisms, and I thought, man. And it just felt so self-condemning. Um, I was, one of my uh, favorite uh, um, op-ed writers is David Brooks from the New York Times, and he wrote an article called The Moral Bucket List. And he kind of talks about this a little bit in there. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> he says, we are all weak, seeking for the glory that we believe is ours to hold, but what is that? But if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary and it's easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you're not obviously hurting anyone and people seem to like you, you must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls that you sometimes meet. So a few years ago, I set out to discover how those deeply good people got that way. I didn't know. If I could follow their road to character, and I'm a pundit, he says, more or less paid to appear smarter than I really am, but at least I wanted to know what the road looked like, and I came to the conclusion that wonderful people are made, not born. That the people I admired to achieve an unfakeable inner virtue, built slowly from specific and moral spiritual accomplishments, and if we wanted to be gimmicky, we could say these accomplishments amounted to a moral bucket list the experiences one should have on the way towards the richest possible inner life. Isn't that apt description of us? I mean, maybe you're here this morning and and I I would assume in a room this large that many of you may be coming back to church. Uh, Maybe some of you have been in church for a while and you find yourself in that boredom. Maybe some of you, and I hope many of you are in this room that are exploring Christianity again, asking that same question. What makes Christianity different? we're looking at a chapter that draws that out. And I don't know if you heard some of the words from that, but it'd be easy to come in here and be self-condemning or hear the Bible read or hear things in confession or parts of the church that automatically just exhume things out of your heart that you just say, I just feel condemned again. You know, I may have sung a song, Arise, My Soul Arise, but I don't feel like I'm rising up. How do we change? How do we grow? How How do we seek that out? Romans chapter 8 is considered what's called the gem of gems. Romans was a, a letter written to a church in Rome that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote. He never actually got to see them, visit them. And he wanted to write to them about what it meant to be a Christian, to grow, live, thrive in that. And when he did, this chapter stuck right basically in the middle was one titled of assurance. Think about this. These Christians were being persecuted persecuted. They were hiding. Their faith was constantly being berated. What would give them assurance to live out the gospel? Romans chapter 8 is on assurance. And isn't there anything that we need more as assurance? Wouldn't that actually transform your boredom? To know that it's not just there's a point A and a point B and you're going to get there one day but that there's actually movement, there's actually change, there's actually transformation in your life. I wanna see character change. This is, David Brooks says, we are all weak seeking for the glory that we believe is ours to hold it, but what is that? What is that glory? Romans eight is to tell us that we are moving from weakness to glory. I don't know if you caught it, but this passage begins in weakness and it ends in glory. How do we get there? How do you arrive to that moment? What is it? So I think it, 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 we're going to ask and kind of look at two things here. One is, what helps us in our weakness? How are we helped in our weakness? And then how do we carry on and arrive at that glory? How are we helped in weakness and how are we arrive in glory? Two simple things, but I tell you, we could look at this for weeks with the words that are brought out of this passage. The first thing here is it starts out in verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The word weaknesses, we we kind of talked about last week a little bit, is the fact that weakness doesn't just talk about one moment. It's talking about the everyday weakness that we live in. It's the waters we swim in. It's the constancy of seeing things in us or in other people that we admire and we go, gosh, I just feel, I can't make it. I just never measure up. I'm never there. And yet it begins not just with our weakness. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. That there's a person. There's someone in involved in our weaknesses, in the day-to-day. Look, one of my favorite um, apologists, someone who, defend, apology means defended, the faith, not say or sorry, but actually defended the Bible, said, we need someone to be with us in every moment Of our life. And what the Bible's describing us to us is the Spirit. He intercedes, He comes in, and He's a part of our life. He says, it says here that He intercedes for us. What does it mean to have someone intercede for us? Have you ever had anybody really walk with you in a way that not only knows those parts of you, that when you begin to cross examine your life, that they don't just look down on you and shame you, but they actually help you look at those things and they help you describe what's there and they help you examine them. And then they say, let's move on from there. You know, one of the big things, and I remember this even when I was on campus, was the idea of having accountability groups, accountability partners. And that word can be a really damaging word for us. Because when we talk about accountability, we talk about somebody that goes, yeah, you messed up again really bad. And when people would get around in circles, and they may still do this now, where you kind of just sit and you throw out your stuff, your sin, your mess on the table, and everybody throws theirs out too, and you go, yeah, look how messy we are. But you know what the, the problem is with that? You're not actually picking up others' mess and sin and walking with them actively forward. There's no movement forward. It's just this expression of what we should be doing is actually entering in and caring for one another. I remember, I have to use, I've actually told some of you this illustration, but it's so perfect. I remember being on a campus, it's for you, many of you students, and I remember sitting with a group of, of men saying, yeah, we, I had to eat the onion again. And I was like, eat the onion? What is eat the onion? They're like, well, if we mess up, Spiritually, we've made a pact with each other that you have to eat a whole onion. Go to the fridge, pop that puppy out and just start chawing on it like an, like an apple. And I looked at them and I thought, wow. I mean, how many onions have y'all eaten, you know? And, and, and to think about that for a moment, what, they're, what they said that is, is very similar to all of us. Maybe some of us are like, I would never eat an onion, but how much do you eat your own your own fear, your own pride, your anxiety. It's not maybe a physical, tangible thing, but you live in a cycle where you think you can fix it and keep yourself from from messing up because your intercessor becomes an onion. It becomes you. How can I avoid doing that thing, right? What the Spirit is doing, the Spirit enters in and speaks on our behalf. It gets in places into your heart. It moves into rooms that you are unwilling to see or take part in, and actually interprets, loves, cares for you in those places. You know those places like in your house, or in your apartment, your dorm, where you're kind of learning the space, and you realize after a certain amount of time that there's a corner, or a room, or a place, or a closet that you just don't go to often, and there's just junk in there. You either open a drawer, you either open the door, you see stuff, there are cobwebs. I mean, I was looking even just yesterday in a room and there are already spiders like making homes in it. And I'm thinking, I thought I came in here. So what the Spirit does in intercession, He enters into those places and stays. He doesn't come and go. He remains in the rooms of your heart, the places that you don't want to visit, that you don't want to look at. And He, he speaks, it says, on our behalf, that He groans. And this groaning isn't another language. It's actually groaning in your language to speak to God about what's here. See, this is the weirdest thing. The Holy Spirit is a person that you know, and you know him if you're here, and you may say, I'm a Christian, but I don't talk about the Holy Spirit much. And if you're here and you're learning about Christianity, let me explain what we talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person who, in character and in his personality, he's different from the other two in what we would call the Trinity, God the Father and God the the Son. Because you see the Father and the Son speak a lot, but when the Spirit speaks, he speaks often, but it's not in a way that we think. He's often the one that's not thought of, but he's with us, even more so in some ways than Jesus. Because Jesus, it said, says, is interceding. He intercedes for us by sitting next to God. He in, in the Bible we read in Acts that he actually ascended into heaven physically, and he sits next to God to speak on our behalf as the righteous sacrifice. But the Holy Spirit actually intercedes and lives within your heart. The third person of the Trinity lives in those rooms and in those caverns and those ways and corners where you need a presence. You need someone to speak on your behalf, to draw out, to exhume, to mine out those things that you would never be able to utter and those things that you need to utter to God. The groanings, the speaking. And he weaves it. Here's what's cool about this. The Holy Spirit speaks in ways that we cannot speak, but he weaves it, He molds it, He conforms. There's a language here he says that he says in uh, verse 29, "For those he, for new predestined, he, "to be conformed to the image of His Son." It's all in this conforming. He's taking us and shaping us into this image. And it's like this beautiful harmony put together. So he takes our words and our language and he shapes it and he interprets it up to God. I don't know if you've heard this uh, of Wynton Marsalis. He's an incredible uh, jazz trumpet uh, player. But there's a a, a great um, story of him playing at one nightclub. And he was somewhat in a place where nobody would really recognize him and uh, he was playing one of his songs, and a cell phone went off. And, they, and the person kind of grabbed it and did that thing where they didn't push the off button. There is a silent button, everybody, just so you know. The silent button. And he didn't, he just started talking before he got out the door and ran out the door. And there were several people that wrote uh, about this. One was in The Atlantic uh, who wrote about this. Listen to what happened. So the fourth song was a solo showcase Uh, called, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, unaccompanied. And when the cell phone went off, he was performing the song in murmurs and sighs at points nearly talking to the words and notes. It was a wrenching act of creative, creative expression. It was just this glorious thing. There was a climax there. The music was going. It was rich, it says. He performed the song in the midst of that with everybody talking and then everyone kind of silenced and when he reached the climax, Marcellus played the final phrase in the title statement in the declarative tones allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. The room was filled with silence until at the most dramatic point someone's cell phone went off blaring a rapid sing-song melody and electronic beeps. You know that whole thing, right? People started giggling and picking up their drinks. The moment the whole performance unraveled and Marcellus paused for a beat, motionless. As his eyebrows arched, I scrawled on a sheet of paper on a notebook. Someone wrote this, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marcellus replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. But then he repeated it, and he began improvising variations of the tune. The audience slowly came back to him, and in a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he left off, with you. The ovation was tremendous. And then the person who had the phone walked back in and said, what did I miss? Marcellus had taken this cell phone and these notes that ruin this magic. I just love that magic ruined written and took it and wove it in and created this unreal melody out of a cell phone tone. Interpreting notes, making them sound in. Incredibly gorgeous to people's ears, drawing them in to take what the drinks they picked up to set back down to lean forward and hear. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in his groanings for us. It's not just a groan, and and, and if you heard last week, there are groanings of creation and groanings of our spirit, but the spirit groans for us. He enters into those groanings, and yet he interprets the notes and melodies of our prayers that always seem to be like magic ruined and make them gorgeous into the ears of our Father. That is his intercession. That's what he does And he even goes further to say this. If it's not just that he enters into those places, verse 27 says, He searches the hearts who know, hearts knows, wait, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit. There is an Old Testament phrase here that's drawn back in, it's called the searching and testing. It's that God searches and tests hearts. If you go through the Old and New Testament, it talks about how God searches and tests people's hearts over and over and over. And I don't know about you, but that scares me. It's one thing for him to enter a room of my heart and that I don't want to occupy or go in. It's another thing for him to search it out, to actively, presently find new corners and new places that I don't want him to know. All the more, isn't that why we need this interpreter of notes in every corner? Because what, here's what God finds. When he goes into your heart, and he does, it's not a matter of if, it's where. Who does he find? He finds the Holy Spirit. His person that he sent into you to speak back to him. It's crazy. It's almost like we all, if you follow Jesus, what it is saying and what it means here, if you believe in him by faith, that God has sent his spirit into you, different than what you see maybe in the Old Testament where the spirit just kind of comes. It says the spirit lives in you so that no matter where God searches, he always finds the spirit and you are never left wanting. You are never left without words, and you always have notes. You always have harmony. It's always building in, and he always hears back. God, in his ears, always hears, not magic ruined, beautiful music. He always hears that. It comes back to him. That is the weakness that you have. Does that not sound like great weakness? Does that now sound like a different kind of weakness that we live in? We live in a weakness of magic ruin, but yet our weakness is because we have a spirit in us that makes us speak, heard, walking with us every moment. You're not left without. Because any time you impugn your character, any time you look at yourself and, and think, you know, how can I shake off my guilty fears and rise? It's not because you have so much strength. It's because you have someone that God has put in you to actually serve in places that you cannot stand up, that you literally can't get your feet out in front of you or under you, spiritually, physically, sexually, whatever it is, mentally, it doesn't matter. It is in your weakness that the Lord even comes to shape you and begin conforming you in that. That doesn't call you to inactivity. It should call you to activity in him. If this is one you get to have in relationship, shouldn't that drive us to say, if I'm on that team, if I have this God working in me, there's no way I can be be defeated. I can work out of my weakness and know it's for a purpose of glory. And where is he taking us? There's a verse here that is probably quoted. It's probably etched on a pillow. You may have it on a bookmark. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? But that's not the whole verse. It goes for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that line, in fact, if you look and do research on it, is an interesting line. It's used even in other philosophies. That line of works together for good has been taken out and it's been used often in Hebrew literatures, in old uh, philosophical literature. But what's being done here is it's saying that this good is being woven into this relationship with someone else. Good, and let's define our terms here because good doesn't mean happiness. We typically think that when we read a verse like that, all things work together for good. What do I need good to happen to me today, right? What is good? I don't know if you uh, watch documentaries on Netflix. I'll flip through every now and then and find some and some of, some of you will give me some good uh, fodder for that. But there's one called Happy. Have you seen this documentary called Happy, it's very interesting. Uh, it left me unhappy watching it uh, because I felt unhappy. I'm like, I, am I happy? I don't know. But one of these, this documentary did was it actually was, was paralleling and showing how people are happy or not happy based on their, on their circumstances, on their surroundings, on their resources, on their internal clock, whatever it may be. And it was really interesting to see because most of what I saw in that documentary, happy, is contained on whether it's chemical Or it's circumstantial. And isn't that an interesting thing for us? Because I think oftentimes we can take a verse like this and weave it into our religiousness. Or maybe you're here this morning and and you're kind of going, I I don't know if I follow Jesus, um, but I kind of like that verse. It sounds good. I like things to work for my good. What God is doing is saying it is for your good outside of your chemical balance and outside of your circumstances. It is not for those things alone. It takes those things and maybe shapes them for you but it is not towards those things. And that is a huge thing to understand because we typically see calling and good and those kind of things as kind of what we make of it. What's my calling? What's my good? But God is saying it's for conformity. It's for you to become like someone else. It's for you to be changed into someone else. And it says here, called according to purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's for you to become someone new. Isn't that what really transforms our character? I mean, you really want to see good parts of you become different. It can't be just because you feel good every day or because everything around you is good, that your chemical balance is good, or that your circumstances are good. If we put our character in those things, it will be just as David Brooks said, these external circumstances that we find ourselves in an empty life, it will not hold. And we have things that are enjoyable both chemically and circumstantially, but what if our character only hung on those two things? Then what if everything in our life went well or everything that we felt went well? That we, Would we be really changed? Would we be transformed? What gets down deepest is the fact that God, for his purpose towards our glory, is at work. It's not just in our weakness, but he's carrying us on to this glory through the spirit, through his work, and it has to be outside of that. It has to be in a person. It has to be in him. There's a chain here called the golden chain, and it's these verses at the end. Some of you may have been, Uh, scared by. And I hope that you weren't, but it's interesting to note in verse 29 and 30, he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then he goes on even further in 30 to say, predestined, called, called justified, justified, glorified. These huge things that we would call theological terms. But when Paul was writing this letter to them, He was not writing big theological terms for them just to get and go, okay, I got it. What does that mean? He was writing these things because to talk about predestination, calling, foreknowledge is not just a debate that we have. He was actually saying, this is your grounds for your assurance, your grounds can't be how, how, how well you hold on to your glory or your character or your growth through how you feel good or how well you run your life in circumstances. It has to be someone else gripping onto you. There has to be someone else whose hands are stronger, who get into the difficulty and hold on to you no matter what. The word foreknowledge here is not a word of he knew before that you're going to, choose him. Sometimes we use that language. Actually, foreknowledge to foreknow. Know is an intimate language. It means he set his love on us long before we set our love on him. That in time and space, God set his love on us long before we set our love on him. And that predestination, and I I want to, let's go there for just a moment because I think I want to set you at ease with it. It does not mean you don't wrestle with the fact that God is in control. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult to see that there is this. This is in the Bible. We can't avoid it. But what it does mean is we need to apprehend it. We need to come towards it and say, God, how do you love us with this love set on us before and in us and set with us and you carry us on to what is called glorification here, to be glorified. Predestination is a word that essentially is saying to us, And he has planned his salvation for us. Now this doesn't mean that he moves in and out, that we can't like get up, go eat at Satco, and, you know, everything is out of order. It does though mean that there is a secret will of God and a revealed will. It does mean that there's something, some things that we can never get our head into, but it does mean that God shows us his will for us, his revealed plan in his Bible. It shows us that he sends his son, Jesus. It shows us that he's doing a work on our behalf that we would not figure out and we would not choose. And yet he works in us to allow us to be in relationship with him. He's not in relationship with robots or automatons. He's in relationship with people here and now. This is why we bring up those questions all the time of how has so-and-so come to Jesus? And if you're asking these questions, like I have... So many friends, and let me take out a couple scenarios for you. I have several friends with, with children who um, are of special needs, such severe special needs that they can't actually utter certain things about Jesus or God or the world. They're difficult to understand. How do we trust and know that God loves and puts, sets his love on them? Is it by their work or movement forward or is it by something greater? Is it by a trust, by faith that God's love is greater, that he works through covenant families, that he works through his seeing? His plan is bigger than our voices, our mouths, our nature. And yet he uses it. He uses those things in and through them. I have family members like maybe many of you that may not know Jesus, How do I trust, how do I know, how do I love my very, very, very close family members and speak to them about these truths and I am called to speak to them. I'm not called to sit back. See, this predestination and calling was to give assurance and humility. That's why Paul wrote it, not to make arrogance and inactivity. It was to do the complete opposite to send us into relationship, to to pronounce a good news to people knowing that it would do the work and we follow. This is why when we pray for our friends, our family members, is that I'm not praying to the family member. I'm praying to God to do this work in him, to change him or her, to do that powerful work. See, when we come to this table like this, we're seeing the activity of God. We're seeing this sovereign work that he does. See, this table is set sovereignly. I didn't set this table. As much as we set it, God sets this table. It's his, it's his name on it, it's his authority. But what allows us to come forward and bring our magic ruined is because he has set it right. And we can come take of this table and partake and enjoy and taste the tangible realities that connect to our weaknesses and weave them into his specific beautiful notes of magic and harmony so that we may be heard and known by God. That's what this table is about. It's about the third person of the Trinity, Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, takes these things and makes them effective so that you feed that you're not left from this table just wanting. You are actually full of faith. If you're here this morning and, and this table might not be that table for you, that you find yourself thinking, I don't know if I need this to be in him, then I want to encourage you to remain in your seat or come forward and receive prayer. Fold your hands when we form semicircles and receive prayer. Do so so that you're not <clears throat> you find yourself moving forward. Entertain what this means. Don't just sit back. Let yourself in integrity ask the questions about it. And if you're here this morning and you say, Jesus is my savior, the one I find myself in, Then the Holy Spirit will take you to this table and will feed you full with bread and wine so that you know him and commune with him. Let's stand together and let's read our liturgy together.